Well, this morning we're continuing in our overview study of Ephesians. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 3. If you have missed any of these, you know that we have CDs for them. And let me encourage you that if you've not heard them all, or even if you have, to get the CDs. And we don't promote CDs because we're promoting what Peter Davidson says or something about us or something about Keith or something about Jeff or Evan. We're promoting the study of the Word of God. Obviously, that's obviously the, the, the source here and the information and the purpose. So get the CDs if you haven't been in all the classes, even if you have. The understanding of the gospel in Ephesians is critical. It's critical to us to understand the source of our salvation, the security of our salvation, you know, the power of what God has done, the purpose in God's saving us. Because it has to do with our ability to appreciate grace, to appropriate that grace, and to live in the good of God's grace. So that we can actually be in a definitive and actual walking daily way, the people that God has saved for his purpose. So we can be achieving by the Spirit's leading and power the purpose of God. So thank you for being here this morning as we begin to look at chapter 3. Father, thank you so much for the incredible patience and kindness and forbearance that you have in saving us and in ministering to us. Father, thank you for knowing us so completely that you know exactly what to do, when to do it, how to do it. Father, as you take your word this power of the gospel, this holy scaffold, and by the surgical ability of your spirit, Father, you carefully deal with the issues in our lives that need to be overcome, need to be extricated, need to be ministered to. Father, if it weren't for this work of your Spirit, this laser work of your Spirit with the Word, Father, none of us would have been saved. None of us would have been secured. So, Father, we are here this morning thanking you for the work that you've done to bring us into the kingdom by your Word and with a heart to receive the ongoing, the continuing, reconstructive ministry of your Spirit as you are now reconstructing us into the image of Christ for which we were born. Father, we thank you for that. We pray this morning expecting and believing that the word that we'll share this morning will be the ongoing process, just another step in this enormously wonderful and glorious work of our being conformed into the image of your Son. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, 
we come to chapter 3, Paul has completed his explanation of God's purpose, you remember, in chapter 1, especially in verses 3 to 14, and then 15 to the end of the chapter, he prays about that purpose being given to the church and that they would understand this and that they would have the power to apprehend it and receive it. And then you remember in chapter 2, as he's beginning to go ahead with dealing with the Gentiles, he takes a dog leg and begins to talk about our sinful condition into which we were born into this world. No hope without God in the world. And he talks about us being saved by grace. And then he begins to include and say to the Gentiles, you have been involved in this. And this great work of God is to include you into the kingdom of God. So in order to do that, God has destroyed that dividing wall, that racism wall, that sin wall that separates people. God has demolished that in the death of his son so that the two the Jewish group and the rest of humanity, Greeks, Gentiles, Babylonians, barbarians, Scythians, the whoeverans, could be brought in so that God's people, although being diverse in a natural, social, racial way, will be one in Christ. And so you remember he explained some of that to the Gentiles. And then this morning, I think he's ready to get going. Let me get going. Now that I've explained, let me get going. So let's look at the first couple of verses in chapter 3. Verse 1. For this reason, for this reason, for everything that we've talked about, all that we've said in chapters 1 and 2. Now, when you read Paul, he is an attorney, and he builds a case block by block, precept by precept, Word by word, argument by argument. By the way, the word argument doesn't mean contesting with one another. The argument here is a presentation of facts and truth, building unto a summation. And so, for this reason, everything that I've said, for this reason, you see, now that Paul has laid the doctrinal foundation for God's eternal purpose in Christ, he's laid the foundation for us. He's told us all that the Holy Spirit has given him to explain to the church for their proper understanding and ability to receive and walk in God's purpose. All the foundation for God's eternal purpose in Christ has been given. He is now ready to apply it through the imperatives. In other words, here's what God has done. Here's what God's purpose is. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's how God has joined all of you all together. Here is how God has saved you. Now, therefore, this is how it is supposed to work out. Doctrine is for practice. We never study the Word just to get some information and gloat over the information. The Word of God, the doctrine of the Word of God, the gospel, is always for the purpose of practical outworking. So Paul reminds them of the cost of being Christ's ambassador. Remember, for this reason, what does he say? I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. For this reason, and he says again, I, Paul, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul was actually a prisoner of Rome? See, Paul was in prison in Rome. But even though Paul was physically imprisoned, Paul was never spiritually imprisoned by the power of this world in Christ. He's not in prison. He is a prisoner. And he uses the word, I think, very aptly here to draw attention to, to the fact that he, Paul, has been sovereignly incarcerated 
by God into Christ. You know, as we were all locked down in the cell of sin before we were saved, by God's purpose, God has now, thankfully, locked us down in Christ. Amen? We are now prisoners of Christ. Now, what does that mean? You see, the idea here is this. Paul, as a prisoner, did not make his own choices. This morning, I'm getting up about 9 o'clock. I'm going to have some eggs and bacon and I'm going to have some toast. Afterward, I'm going to take a nice walk in the park. After that, I think Paul had no ability as a prisoner of Rome to make unilateral or personal choices out of his own desires. And as the prisoner of Christ, we have that ability. But because we are the prisoner of Christ, because we are slaves, because we are servants, because we are sons of God, because we are friends of God, our will now is to do the will of him who has saved us and who sends us into the world just as he sent his son into the world. And so Paul is not preoccupied with being a prisoner of Rome, but his preoccupation is a prisoner of Christ. How many of us are preoccupied with our earthly setting, our earthly problems? And, and I know and I understand that earthly problems tend to have a very strong ability to occupy us, to grab us, and to lock us down. Anybody have that happen to you that you get locked down by your earthly situations? And so in the midst of that, what do we have to proclaim? You have to say, look, I feel I'm being locked. Do do you know what it feels like to begin to be locked down by sin and by the world and by relationships that shouldn't lock you down? Any of us know how this feels? Can we identify this? I don't know. Yes, we can. And when you begin to feel the chains that begin to grip your heart and in a way that they begin to pull you, as it were, from fellowshipping with God. You need to stand up. You need to say, I am not going to be a prisoner of this relationship. I'm not going to be a prisoner of this problem. I'm not going to be a prisoner of my sin. I will not be a prisoner of whatever. Friends, we're prisoners of Christ. Are we or are we not prisoners of Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Yes. And we have to stand against Satan's assaults to draw us back into the prison of sin. So we have to stand against that. So Paul says, you know, I have some bad outward natural circumstances, although he doesn't say that. He could have thought that. He says, but I am a prisoner of Christ, and God is going to use me as effectively, maybe even more so, in prison than he ever did outside of prison. Why can Paul say this? Because he serves a sovereign God. He is imprisoned by God's purposeful design. You are going through what you go through by God's purposeful design in order to show you where your loyalty, where your life really is and where it shouldn't be and calling us by the Spirit to exercise faith and obedience in God, to break through the chains that would bind us away from God in order to bring us closer into deeper fellowship with him. So he's gotten, he says, I am on behalf of you Gentiles, I'm a prisoner. You see, what were Paul's marching orders? He says, for your sake. Paul is in prison 
in Christ, but also in Rome. For why? For the sake of the Gentiles. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, I like other people, but why should I go through this to help them? Why should I go through what I'm going through for them? You know, if you're going to be in any way a minister of the gospel, how many of you are ministers of the gospel? How many are ministers of the gospel? Everybody in here saved? Then we're all what? Ministers of the gospel. If we are going to be in any way ministers of the gospel, let me share this with you. God wants us to help even though it may hurt us. Are we willing to be hurt in order to help? Isn't this the message of the cross? Are we willing to be hurt in order to help? Paul is willing to be hurt in order to help. Willing to share things, willing to go places, willing to lay down things for the purpose of helping others. And so he says, for your sake, for the sake of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, he says, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He said, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, for your sake. And then he all of a sudden stops. He says, well, you know, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, how the mystery was made known by revelation as I've written briefly. He says, I'm about to launch in to the imperatives. I'm about to tell you how to walk it out. And all of a sudden, he starts and he gets a thought. Wait a minute. I need to stop again. I need to take another, if you would, dog leg to the left. You see, but before giving them their marching orders, before telling them how this gospel of grace is to be walked out and worked out and lived out in a very practical and day-to-day relational basis, Paul says, let me, let me, let me stop a second. Because I want you to know that God has given me the responsibility to reveal God's mystery to you. He has to stop. He stops himself before going on. And by the way, if you would just take a moment, if you have your Bibles open, look at the beginning of chapter 4 and look at the beginning of chapter 3. Do you see how he kind of picks up his terminology again? He starts, look, I'm a, you know, for this reason, Steve, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. Wait a minute, I need to tell you something about that. Then I've told you in chapter 3, then he begins in chapter 4. Now, for this reason, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, you see how he begins again. He picks up his thought in chapter 4. So chapter 3, again, is a parenthetical, if you would. But it's God's parenthetical to fill in more of the gaps. He says, verses 4 and 5, he said, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery. You know, you remember where we first saw the word mystery in Ephesians? I think it's Ephesians 1.9. I think I could be corrected on that, but I think the word mystery first shows up in chapter 1, verse 9. He's talking about a mystery, mysterion, that which has been hidden from man's understanding but is now being revealed by God through revelation of the Holy Spirit. So a mystery is not something that I can study and understand intellectually. 
that I can search for and dig out on my own. But a mystery is that purpose of God which has always been there but has been, if you would, shrouded or covered over or intimated. But now in the timing of God, God is ready to reveal what this great mystery is. And he reveals it by the revelation of the Holy Spirit through the prophets and the apostles, through Through those who have the word of God given to them in this century, this first century, and who have delivered that word to us through the word of God, which we have in our hands this morning. So this Bible is the contents and is the revelation of God's great mystery, his great purpose, which is kept hidden from man until God is ready to reveal it. You see, that's why when you look at the Old Testament, that's why in the Old Testament you see a lot about God, but you don't see the information about God's Trinity, about the way God is going to save so explicitly until we get to the New Testament. It's there, but it's there in bits and pieces and shadows by intimation. It's there by reference, by innuendo, but it's not there explicitly as it is in the New Testament. It's a mystery. But we need to know the Old Testament because it's fabulous to see that mystery in the Old Testament hidden and then revealed in the New as we who are those to whom God has revealed the mystery are now being able to look at his word in a way to understand it from cover to cover. And so before he's going to give them about this mystery, he says, I want you to perceive this. This mystery had been kept cloaked by God until it was ready to be revealed to his apostles and his prophets by the Spirit who have revealed it to us in the word. So this great mystery. So what is the mystery? Verse 6. What is this great mystery? Now, the shame of doing a class like this is this. We can only touch on these issues as we dance quickly through the Word. But the mystery is something that we don't have time for within the structure of this class, but which is a marvelous working of God in bringing about our salvation and bringing us together as his children. So finally, we learn what the content of the mystery is. Look at this. This mystery is that the Gentiles, who are they? They are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs with whom? With Christ and with one another. You see, sometimes we forget. We're heirs of God. We're heirs of Christ. Amen? Everybody agree with that? We're heirs with Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're heirs with Christ. I got to be heirs with you too. I don't like you that much, Ashton. You know, you're kind of darker than I am, brother, so I'm going to move away from you and go on the white side of the fence. Oh, I shouldn't say that? You mean believers don't think like that? (laughs) We're not only fellow heirs, Jody, with Christ. We're fellow heirs with one another. As surely as we are in Christ, we are bound together with one another. This guy here up in the front row looks different than I do. Stand up. Look at him. Do we look like we're brothers in the natural? Man, there was a problem in this marriage. Somebody in our background did something we didn't know about, brother. 
Look at Rufus and look at me. Do we look? No way. We different. Somebody said something funny back there. Who said it? Somebody needs an anointing. Mike said, hi, Mike. All the women are pointing to you, Mike. Your wife was the first one. He did it. He did it. I confess sin. He did it. Betty, you know, that's, that's in Genesis 3. The snake did it. I like that. That, that confession is right out of Genesis 3. So, look, we're fellow heirs. We're fellow heirs. We're a family. We talked about this last week. There is no way. May I repeat that? There is no way that God's gospel is manifested the way God desires it and God is honored the way he requires it and we as a family of God do not get along with one another in Christ. Dealing with issues, yes. Giving and receiving correction, yes. But there's no way and there's no excuse under God's heaven for any relational, not difficulties, but continuing stress and strife to continue without it being dealt with in a reconciliation way. Because if we do that, if we deny the activity and the result of being reconciled to one another and dealing with the issues and overcoming them in Christ and forgiving and forbearing and doing everything else, if we deny that to one another, we are denying what God has done in us to his own son. Are you with me this morning? You see, this has major consequences to God and to the revelation of the gospel to the world and into the health of the church. I'm just, this is number one. I have a whole lot more to say. What am I doing? This mystery is that the Gentiles are following. We're members of the same body. The what? Well, well, could you, you underline that word same? I'm not a member of a different body than Alice is. See, Alice is of a different cultural group. She's from a Chinese background. I'm English. It's pretty obvious I am. It's a superior stock of people. I realize that. It's not my fault. God made us superior. And so there's Alice. No, we're of the same body. Husbands and wives. You know, I realize that Jean and I have been married 44 years, and she tells people, I'm not related to him. She's quick. I'm not related to that man. <laughs> Now, I haven't corrected that openly yet, but she is related to me, isn't she? Bill, are you related to me, brother? In the spiritual sense. Come on, admit it, Bill. Come on, come on, admit it. Come on, admit we're related, right? Bill's way back there. He says, good night. If I sit back there with Nancy, he won't notice me this morning. He always picks on me. Well, Bill's lovable. I like to pick on lovable people. Thanks for some of the laughter of some of you. All right, Michael, we know you're here. Thank you, brother. So, we're same body. You see, this is basic. This is basic. Why do I spend time here? Let's get on with other stuff. No. This is where we live and breathe and have a relational activity. We're fellow heirs in Christ. We are in the same body of Christ. 
We are all partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Koinonia, that sharing together, that mutual sharing. We are all birthed by the same spirit into God. And so today, even though genetically or by blood and all that, we may not have the same stuff in us, we have the same life in us called the Spirit of God, binding us together as the eternal body family of God. We are all brothers and sisters with our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? Do we believe this? Then, as I said last week, if there is any relational difficulty, tiff, or problem that exists in your life with another believer, you are instructed and commanded by God. It is required, imperative, that you deal with this. Even if you have to initiate the thing and humble yourself and go before this person or these people or whatever to say whatever God leads you to say in order to help the reconciliation to occur. We have to. Oh, there's so much more to say about this, that one verse. You see, why was this such a revelation? Well, we know all this. You see, we know it, but they didn't know it. Why was it? Because, you see, the Jews who were part of the church, the Jews who were part of the church, in the church as believers, They had considered themselves not only God's special people, but God's only people. Now, there may be people in here that you really consider you, yourself, as God's only person. I don't think so, but as we sneer and look down and disdain other believers, we are coming close to that kind of an attitude. I'm I'm God's only person. Thank God we are all God's special people people you see any other thought would have been a scandal and an abomination to a jew what you mean we join together with these uncircumcised gentiles what do you mean by that how does that look and who what what is that all about you see the church in this country at least has suffered and the society has suffered in the hearing and the witnessing of the power of the gospel over the years because of the disparity or the separation of races in this country, in the church. It's wrong, should not be, should never have been, it should never be. Gene and I were privileged. And I, I, I shared with a man who is a black fellow who owns a funeral company, his name is Art how much of a privilege it was for us to be at the funeral of your sister and to be a part. There were, what, about ten white people in that church? Seven? Three? Four? They're counting us. I mean, we we white. Yeah, thank you. You don't see me as white, do you? Man. It was a privilege to be there with this man and that lady Rufus and Fudge. (laughs) Right? To be there with them. And let me say this about Phage. She has a... I hate how to say this without 
either killing one of us or blowing us up. There's an attitude in her that I don't see in many white folks. We went to the funeral, and the pastor stood up, and he says, any visiting ministers, y'all come on up and sit in the front. Well, I didn't do that. I'm not going to be presumptuous. I'm in another culture, and I don't want to be presumptuous. I'm not going to do that. So we went through the service, and it was a delightful service. They started singing, soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Right? You remember? Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. And we continued. It was wonderful. And then at the end of the service, they asked the pastors who were up there just to encourage the family. And so Phage sent her daughter to come get me. I'm sitting in the pew. Judd, I'm minding my own business. I'm not even being loud in that service. Exactly. I didn't want to offend. And they asked, she said, you need to come up here and sit with the other pastors. So did that, able to share. You know why? Because Fade says, you're my pastor. You're my pastor. This isn't an elevation of a Peter Davidson man. This is an acknowledgement of what God is doing in this church. As over the years and by the power of the gospel, God is thankfully breaking down. And in this church, I don't think we've had the kind of issue here for years, but whatever breaking down the dividing wall and causing Jew and Gentile to no longer be seen as Jew and Gentile, but man and woman, brother and sister in Christ. Thank you, Phage. Thank you, Rufus. You may give the God a hand on that. You see, the Jews had not seen or heard God's consistent message. Beginning with Abraham, he says, the nations... Nations, not just nation, is going to be blessed. It's reiterated by Isaiah. It's prophesied by Malachi. It culminates in Re- Revelation 7 on that all the peop- people from all the nations would populate God's kingdom. It will be a motley crew, a diverse crew, a colorful crew, a great tapestry of God's love. In verses 7 to 13, ex- Paul explains his role and God's purpose in this mystery. First of all, verses 7 and on. It is an astounding grace. Now, I am concerned at this point that among us as believers, this is a huge deficit or deficiency or problem. I understand that every time we talk about God or Jesus, we're not going to become overwhelmed with such emotion we can't function. I understand that. I really do. But I see this, and I have to struggle with it in my life, and I think we all do. We, as a group of believers, whether this church, other church, I'm talking about we generally, today are not experiencing the astoundingness of grace the way God wants us to because we have not yet understood or appreciated or remembered, other than some here, the depth and the depravity of our sin and the extent that God has gone to to save us. 
this is the most astounding message, word, work that we will ever experience in all our lives. And because grace isn't as astounding as it should be, our obedience, therefore, is not as astounding as it should be. Because grace isn't in the place of elevation that it should be. Therefore, obedience and service and faithfulness, etc., are not in the place that they should be. To the place that grace is increasing in astoundingness and in exaltation, it will draw up into itself our devotion, our obedience, our faithfulness, etc., It will draw that up. Why? Because our obedience and devotion and response to God is part of the work of grace. It is an aspect of what grace is all about. As Paul proceeds to explain the mystery of God, he is astonished astonished by God's grace toward him. He says this, of this gospel, I... Don't, don't say this, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God. Don't read it like that. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. I. Why I? Why is that so astounding? Because you see, it's because of Paul's background. It's because of where Paul was before he was saved. You see, Paul's entire life is a ministry of the gospel. He's not just a minister and he does everything. Remember in Philippians 1.20, I think, in 1.21, he says, for me to live a life is Christ. He says, I was made a minister. It was given to me by the working of God's power. Why was Paul so powerful in the gospel? Paul was publicly powerful. The gospel was publicly powerful in God because it was privately powerful in Paul, rather. It was publicly powerful in Paul. Why? Because it was privately powerful in Paul. If the gospel isn't publicly powerful in us, there's only one reason. Because it's not working powerfully in me privately. Because what has come out of me publicly is a work that is happening in me privately. And so if there's deficiency in me, which there is, then how to deal with the deficiency? I must go to God and hear from Him. Where the relational difficulty or stress or failure on my part is, I must seek him to embrace him and to experience him. Anytime I find failure in me, and I find failure in me, one of the primary things I do is to ask God for a deeper experience of his mercy and of his love. You see, because to the place that I am experiencing the depth and the power, the width and the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love for me, that fire of the love of God will burn away whatever dross, hay, wooden stubble, and sin in my life. 
And so I go to God and I say, Father, I need a deeper, deeper work of your spirit in me. A purging by the fire of your goodness and your mercy. Because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I don't ask to do this, that, or the other. I ask for a greater functioning of the relationship to be drawn in closer to him. See, Paul, in verse beginning of verse 8, he says this. He gives you the reason for his astonishment. To me, grace was given. Why? Why was he so astonished? I am the least of all the saints. Why does he call himself the least of all the saints? What does he mean, the least? Does that mean that there is a standing in Christ where Paul doesn't have the same standing that the rest of us have, that some kind of way before the throne of God he's a little lower or maybe he's a little higher and this one's higher? No, before the throne of God in standing in an acceptance and in forgiveness as titled sons of God, we are all equal before God. Galatians 3.28 tells you that. But Paul is thinking of what he has done. Why is this astonishing to Paul? Listen to what he says. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans, uh, Acts 8, 3. But Paul, Saul, remember, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Why was he astonished? Because he remembered his past. And by the way, he remembered it not as an opportunity of Satan to draw him or pull him down, but as an opportunity to embrace grace and to be astonished by the work of God that even though I live this way, God has saved me and is using me this way. I will say this to you. There is no way on the face of this earth that Peter Davidson should be a pastor in this or any church. No way. I have often asked God about his wisdom in making this a man who has responsibility to stand before you and to share the word of God. I can't get over the fact that God did this. This is something that I never would have pursued, not because of anything in you, but because of me. It's astounding. Astounding. It's scandalous. It's scandalous. And you know what else? It's scandalous that any of us are saved. Can you say amen? Somebody should have jumped on that one. It is scandalous. Butch, is it scandalous that you're saved? Is it? Scandalous. Linda, is it scandalous that even you were saved? Scandalous. Francis, it's scandalous that you're in here as a saved man, isn't it? It's astonishing grace. Remember 9, 4 of Acts. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How many of us were guilty of persecuting Christ before we were saved? Scandalous. I'm not going to read it, but 26 of Acts 9 through 11 gives a further continuance of Paul's testimony. You see, can it be said that before we were saved that we were not guilty of the same kind of attitude toward Christ and his church? Weren't we as much opposed to God? Well, how, do the, how does the now gospel function in Paul? He says, I'm the least of the saints. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. And he was quick to remind them of this. I persecuted the church. I persecuted the church. I'm least of the saints. 
I have done the greatest sin against the church. How did the gospel function in verses 8 to 9? To preach the Gentiles, to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Number two, to bring to light for everyone that is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Isn't that interesting to bring to light? To bring to light. What does that mean? That means that every one of us are in darkness. Do you know what 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says? That the God of this world has what? Blinded our eyes that we may not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God. He's blinded our eyes. We can't see. If we put a blindfold over someone in here, is there a way that he can see what to do if your eyes are blinded? We can't see. There's no light in us. The light had to be given to us. It had to shine in our faces. So in verse 6, you said, you see, he who said, let light be, has shown in our hearts by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is God's light into us. Paul was a minister of this. We are ministers today to bring the light of God to the darkness of those who are unsaved. How? By our words, by our actions, by our disposition, by everything about us, we are light bringers to the darkened world. Verses 10 to 12, the location and purpose of the riches of Christ. So that through the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church. The church is God's passionate purpose. The location of all the glory that he will display in a created order, God has displayed it and will display it in the church, in us, the body of Christ. The church is the most important and actually the only outworking of the gospel in this world, only in the church. Now that we are in the church, the church is to be consuming our passions. You remember in John 2, verse 17, Jesus is clearing out the temple, and what does it say? And the disciples remembered that verse that was said of him in Psalms, zeal for thy house hath consumed me. Or we consumed by and for the church of Jesus Christ. Is this our all-consuming passion? Or is it one of the things in our lives? And we have to fight. Anybody have to fight for this kind of passion? We have to fight for it. Regularly, we have to fight for this. You see, it's not natural. It's not natural. At least it's not in me. And see, this was according to God's great eternal purpose, which he has realized in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through faith in him. And so Paul has explained the mystery. Explained the mystery. He's given it to me to give to the Gentiles. The mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, part of the same body. They're partakers of the same promises. Promises to whom? To Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on down all the way through. So that in the church, the myriad manifold wisdom of God may be manifested 
to all the rules and principalities and powers. The church. Paul finishes and then he's about to begin chapter 4. He said, well, but I need to pray for you. So what I'm going to do is just read through this prayer because we don't have time to go through it in detail, but I'm going to read through it. And as we read through it, just pick up the themes that he is speaking to the church. But look at the way Paul says we are to be gaining and growing in this understanding of the gospel. <clears throat> For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Why the Father? Because, you see, God is, if you would, in the Trinity, the originator of the gospel. It is his purpose, it is his plan, and the gospel is for his glory. Jesus Christ, having received all the glory in our salvation, in, our, in his collecting of the church by the Holy Spirit, will that day give the glory to God the Father. So all glory goes to God the Father. So this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So look at this prayer and understand how does God work out what he has given to us so that chapters 4 through 6 can begin to become a reality in us for God's glory. So that Christ, who? Christ, who? Christ. Not my understanding and yours and the way we do it, so that a person. You see, this is a religion of a person. We are related now to a person. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love. In whose love? In the love of God. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding or knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all, than all that we ask or think. I'm remembering the King James and it's stopping me. You know how you memorize something in one version and it kind of gets into you? <laughs> According to the power at work within us. Whose power at work within us? The Holy Spirit's power, the power of the gospel. To him, be God, to God the glory, to Jesus Christ, to the Holy Spirit, to God himself, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Why was Paul's ministry so powerful and effective? Why? Look at Paul's perspective in this prayer. Look at Paul's perspective. It's thoroughly theocentric. Theo means what? God-centered. Paul's prayer is thoroughly God-centered. Verse 4, the Father. 14, the Father. Verse 15, whom means the Father. Verse 16, his, the Father's glory. He, the Father. His, the Father. Spirit. His spirit. Whose spirit? The Father's spirit. Verse 17, Christ. 19, of Christ. Fullness of God. Verse 20, to him who? The Father. Verse 21, to him who? The Father in Christ Jesus. You see, Trinitarian theology is not only the truth, but it's the only power that God gives. The gospel is a revelation of who God is and how God is to be worked out in us as we'll begin to see in the next two chapters. As we take together chapters 4 to 6 and in the next two classes, 
look at those chapters and see how they are to be worked out in relation to God's eternal purpose. Always attempting to connect what God is telling us on a practical level into who God is and how God is. And that's what we want to do next week and then the week after that. Thank you.